Good morning, everyone. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we are at in our sermon series right now on following Jesus in a fallen world. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and as Zach said earlier, if you did not bring a Bible with you, we've got Bibles underneath the seats in front of you, and we'd love for you to take one of those out and follow along. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1, we're going to go through verse 7, uh, kind of split that little section in half for this week and next. And if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that we have been walking through a part of 1 Corinthians in chapter 7 that dealt with marriage and being single and, and divorce and all of the questions that they were asking as a church in that and Paul sharing that. And if you were not here, I encourage you to go back and listen to those because it'll be completely different than what the world teaches. And so I think it's really important for us to understand what, uh, what the Bible says on those issues. Well, here we have a change, a change of questions in this uh, section. And to kind of get into that, let me just say if two things, first of all, about uh, the Bible that I love. I, I love that the Bible gives us absolutes. I love that. It gives us the do's and the don'ts. So those are the two things. And I love that those things never change. I love that they're the same in every generation. You can look, for example, at the Ten Commandments that forbid certain things with no question at all. We don't have to wonder about it such as worshiping other gods or worshiping idols or taking the name of the Lord in vain, uh, murder and adultery and, and theft and false testimony and coveting. Uh, these things will be forever until the end of time here forbidden. You know, forbidden for us as Christians as well. We, we don't have to wonder about it. And, and there are other things that aren't mentioned in the Ten Commandments that are similarly forbidden, uh, fornication, drunkenness, materialism, uh, laziness, carnal anger, arguing, complaining. The, the, the Bible is very clear about those things. It's, it's a sin. It's a sin. But the Bible also commands certain things to do, not just forbidden, but tells us that there are some things that we must do. We must love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. Amen? We must love our neighbor as ourselves. These are things that are not changing. We must read God's Word. We must feed on the Word of God. We must pray continually. We must pray every day. We should care for those that are in need. We should share the gospel with those that are in our lives that are lost. Those things are clear as well. The do's. So you have clearly forbidden. You have clearly commanded. There's no doubt whatsoever. And then you have debatable issues. Certain things in our lives that we're going to struggle over. 
Some of them may include football games in a few hours. Maybe some of them are like what you struggled over in your past life. But some are ones that even today people argue and kind of figure, try to figure about uh, Sabbath day regulations, what you can or can't do on the Lord's day. That's been difficult historically for certain Christian communities. Uh, can you go to a restaurant on Sunday? Can we play sports on Sunday? Uh, chariots of fire. If you remember that, Eric Little didn't feel like he had the freedom to run on Sunday. Now, he came out of a Scottish Presbyterian background, which is pretty cool. But they were very strong in their viewpoint of the Sabbath and not doing anything on that day. But others have freer approach on the Lord's Day. And so guess what? There's debates on that. What is called liberties by some. And then you have the world in general. The world in general right now, and you know this from just observation of living life, the world perceives rights and privileges and liberties for themselves all the time. The cultural sea of the time frame that we are living in right now is all about the individual. It is a firmly held belief. It's not just a thought. It's a belief that an individual has the right to do anything at all he or she would like to do as long as another human being is not endangered or harmed. And actually, that's even changed, that last part. And so you see this mindset. And then you see if, you know, if I, I want to eat meat sacrificed to idols, who cares if another person has a hard time with it? Let them deal with it. That's their problem. It's my right because we're about self-expression and, and it's the ultimate good. So anything that would hinder the right of that is seen in our culture as inherently bad. And because all of these individual rights are justifiable, it's rarely a question of, should I do this? Should I purchase this? Should I consume this? What are the personal and social ramifications of this decision? When was the last time anyone asked those questions when making a decision? Instead, it's always, well, you know I can which implies and carries an implication of should. Can I purchase this? Can I consume this? Many of the people in Corinth were actually asking the same type of question that our culture is asking today. They were seeking every opportunity, one group, to justify their individual rights and privileges. And that's where we're jumping into this. There were, in this case, in Corinth, the scenario that was happening. There were two sources of meat in the ancient world. You had the regular market, 
where the prices were higher. We'll call that Whole Foods. (laughs) And then you had the local temples where meat from the sacrifices were always available. We'll call that the street vendors. And the permissive members, the liberty members of the church, yeah, they realized that idols, you know, they couldn't contaminate food because they weren't real. So they saved some money by purchasing the cheaper meat available from the temples. Furthermore, if unconverted friends invited them to a feast at which sacrificial meat was served, they, they didn't care. They, they attended whether it was at a temple or in a home. And this offended the other group of Christians. Many of them had been saved out of pagan idolatry, and they could not understand why their fellow believers would want to have anything to do with meat sacrificed to idols. And in Romans 14 and 15, this group had problems over diet and holy days. It's the same basic issue, though. And there was this potential division that is happening in the church. So the leaders asked Paul, okay, what do we do with this? And Paul, what he does in these seven verses, he calls their attention to really three important factors. So let's start digging into this by looking at verses 1 and 2 and understanding that Paul first starts off with this knowledge and understanding concept. Now concerning the sacrifices to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks that he has known anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. Now, in our study very early on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 5, it's acknowledged that the Corinthians had spiritual knowledge and, and it was also acknowledged that they were rather proud of that knowledge. Yes, they knew that an idol, many of them knew that an idol was nothing, merely the representation of a false god. A false god who existed only in the darkened minds of those who worshipped that false god. The presence of an idol in a temple was no proof, obviously, at all that that god, with a little g, existed. Now, what's interesting is Paul would point out later that idolatry was basically the worship of demons. So... You need to understand that you are messing with spiritual powers. It's not just nothing. So the conclusion was somewhat logical. A non-existent God could not contaminate food offered on the altar to that non-existent God. And so far, it would seem like those Christians that were what some would call stronger in their understanding and knowledge, you know, they're, they're... They probably are hearing this and going, yeah, (laughs) yeah, knew it, knew we were okay with that. And they were probably going, well, why are these other Christians, this other group, which some call weak, 
Why are they upset with them when the, the position is logical? Well, let's picture this. There's a little child who is afraid of the dark. And that child will not be assured by any of your logical arguments that there is not something in that closet. And then, as an adult, you can kind of get a superior attitude, like, oh, you're so foolish. Oh, you of little dinky person faith. And you can very easily turn a situation where you could teach and help a little child grow into a time where you actually cause problems with the child's growth because they see you as feeling like you're superior in everything because you kind of have a snotty attitude towards them. Puffs up. Knowledge can puff you up. And then if it's puffed up, it cannot build up. How many of you like know-it-alls? Okay. The know-it-all attitude is only an evidence of ignorance, actually. The person who really knows truth is only too understanding of how much he or she does not know. Furthermore, it is one thing to know doctrine, to know the truth of God's Word, and quite something else to actually know God. It is possible to grow in Bible knowledge and yet not grow in God's grace or in one's personal relationship with God. And Paul is saying, yes, you can have knowledge, but the test of that knowledge is what? Love, which is the second factor that he discusses. If you go back into verse 1 there where he says, knowledge puffs up, but what's the second part of that? But love builds up. Love builds up. And he goes on to say in verses 3 through 6 then about this love and about this knowledge and this com combination of the two in verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he has been known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, for whom all things come, and we exist for Him, and, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all are all, all things, and we exist through Him. And you see what Paul's doing here is he's, he's weaving this knowledge and love that must go together. He said it also in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, where you speak the truth in love. One person many years ago rightly said, truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. You have to have both. Knowledge is power and it has to be used in love. 
And love always has to be controlled by knowledge, which is what we read about earlier in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that prayer of Paul. In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in what? In full knowledge, in all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and without fault until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You see, the one group of the believers in the church in Corinth had knowledge, but they were not using their knowledge and love, obviously. Instead of building up those that uh, were in this other group, the strong Christians, in their knowledge, were only puffing themselves up. And Paul's concern was that those that were strong in knowledge, those saints, they need to help those that are weaker in knowledge to grow. And that's where this idea of love builds up comes to us. And understanding that love, this means that we put others first. When spiritual knowledge is used in love, the stronger Christian, the one that knows the things that like Paul was talking about there, can take the hand of the one that is struggling with this and help him to stand and walk and enjoy that freedom in Christ over time. You can't force feed that. Knowledge must be mixed with love. Otherwise, the saints will end up with big heads instead of enlarged hearts. I love it. One preacher said it this way. Some Christians grow. Others just swell. Knowledge and love, two important factors. Knowledge must be balanced by love if we are to use the liberties that we have in Christ the right way. But there is a third factor, and this is where this gets interesting, because you could see maybe if you stop there, and this is what's dangerous about stopping mid-thought in Scripture, you yank this out and go, see, I can do what I want, and this other person, you know, they're just weak. But verse 7, however, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol and idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So these new converts... They understood a little bit the liberty which they would have in Jesus Christ, but coming from the background of idolatry and being used to those idols, they, they think, you know, they're going, I, if I do this, Scott, I am committing idolatry when I eat that meat because it has been offered to an idol. They think that idol is a reality and therefore their conscience is defiled, and that expression weak there doesn't mean 
physically weak, and it doesn't mean even spiritually weak. It's a term, really, for those that are rigorous in matters of moral indifference. They're, They're like, hey, this is where I'm at on this, and... And they're usually, if you peel it back, you can figure out where that came from and what is going on. For example, as far as God is concerned, according to the New Testament, it is not wrong for a Christian to eat pork. Now, it would have been wrong for a Jewish person to do so in the Old Testament, but a Christian is at perfect liberty to partake of that food. However, let's say we have a recently converted Jewish person in our midst that goes, you know, I still have a problem with that uh, on a a belief level. He or she may feel that it's wrong to eat a roast pork dinner. That is what the Bible's calling a weaker brother. So it's not about, eh, you just don't get it. What's interesting here, what Paul's saying, as long as this person thinks that it's wrong to eat pork, they actually are sinning if they go ahead and eat it. Isn't that interesting? That's what is meant by this expression, their conscience being weak is defiled. If, if my conscience condemns a certain act and I go ahead and commit it, I have sinned. Romans 14, 23, whatever is not from faith is sin. So let me play this out for you a little bit here. I want you to picture two people up here on either side with me. We've got Demetrius from the first century over here. And we've got Clement over here. Both are former idolaters, now saved by faith in Christ. Demetrius shuns everything to do with his old way of life, including the meat sold in the marketplace, because for him, eating such meat would constitute a return to paganism. Make sense, right? That's, that's where he's at. Clement over here avoids the temple, refuses to participate in pagan festivals. That makes sense. But he has no problem eating the meat from that market. Now, Clement understands correctly, as Paul said, that an idol has no power to corrupt the meat. And for him, eating that meat is a non-issue. All right, no biggie. Then one day, both men are in the marketplace. Demetrius sees Clement eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. Demetrius is horrified. But Clement laughs it off and goes, Hey, Demetrius, why don't you have some too? And and Demetrius hesitates. But but Clement's like, Man, I'm going to get this guy to go down my road. I'm going to cut off this piece of meat. He cuts off this piece of meat and he hands it to him. And Demetrius reluctantly and really only by Clement's confidence eats the meat. So here's the question. Has something wrong gone down there? Yes. 
And this is what Paul's getting at. Biblically, both have sinned. You're like, what? The world would say, no, one just got more enlightened. Both have sinned. Clement over here sinned by violating the conscience of the fellow believer. Demetrius sinned in that he essentially, in his mind, returned to idolatry. That's what his conscience was telling him. More importantly, Demetrius is now learning something even worse than that. He's learning it's okay to ignore my conscience. A very dangerous thing to learn. The principle here is that the conscience of the weaker Christian is more important than individual freedom. Did you catch that? Doing something permitted should never hinder the spiritual health of someone else. Yes, we are free in Christ, but we have to take care that our spiritual knowledge is tempered with what? Love. That we do not tempt the weaker Christian to run ahead of his or her conscience. Knowledge, balanced by love, when that happens, the Christian that is over here will have a ministry to the Christian over here. And in the process, both will grow and become stronger. Let's take some application points out of this. I guess... For me, when I was reading this this week, I really was coming down on this side for me. Am I combining right doctrinal knowledge with obedience? Am I doing the things that Jesus told me to do? And I'm combining that with what he told me to do in loving others? Am I building up the body of Christ in everything that I do? Because, you know, having the right to do something does not mean we are free to do it in every circumstance, regardless of its effects on others. You hear the term believer's liberty in Christ. Well, yes, We have liberty, but it should be voluntarily limited in order not to cause another brother to sin by by violating their conscience. Liberty is limited in love. I'll give you an example from 30 some odd years ago. Jenny and I went to uh, speak, at, I spoke at a church uh, in Italy, that was our honeymoon, and uh, remember this, Jen, we, we walked in and the, the gals were wearing head coverings, and we could have done what? I, I don't need to do that. Well, actually, Jenny doesn't need to do that. <laughs> But you, in your Christian liberty with love, put that head covering on because you don't want to cause that person 
to sin and to get confused. Does that make sense? See, maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of love may require you to give up some personal right to a thing. And that's where in Psalm 133, 1, where it says how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. That's part of how that works. We should avoid anything that would make another believer think less of his or her faith or, or that would even make an unsaved person feel more at ease with their sin. Some basic rules of the road on this. When you're thinking about you know, practical advice of, you know, should I do this, should I not? I know that the Bible is, is maybe not a complete answer on a do or a don't on some of these things. I think these are all E's, by the way, if you want to write them down. Um, I think there are some questions you ask about a practice that you're engaging in. Uh, excess would be one. Is this practice hurting my walk with Christ? Am I addicted to something that you know may not be quote-unquote wrong, but am I addicted to it? Is it baggage that God wants me to cut out of my life? It's a, is it a weight that the author of Hebrews would call on me to lay aside so that I could run the race with endurance? Is this an excess in my life, this freedom that I have? I think another E is expedience. Is this thing that I'm doing actually helpful for building up the body of Christ? Is it useful? Is it beneficial? Is it helpful? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that we will look at later on, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. Beneficial, expedient. Third, I'd really wanted to go with Imitation, but that's an I. So we had to go get the thesaurus the out. Emulation, a dead word, <laughs> but one that means the same thing, imitation. Am I imitating what I see in Christ? Can I, can I see Jesus doing this habit pattern that I'm indulging in? You know, 1 John 2.6 Whoever claims to live in him, Christ, must walk as Jesus did. So imitation in doing this, am I, am I imitating Jesus? And Paul even says, what? Imitate me as I'm imitating him. I think another E that is important in this idea of is this permissible or not is evangelism. Will the practice, this practice in my life enhance my witness to ongoing, to, to uh, onlooking non-Christians? Will this habit actually help my testimony or will it hinder it? Will this help me lead people to Christ or will it actually hinder me? Colossians 4, 5, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. People are watching. Would you feel comfortable 
those that are not Christians watching you as you do this action or this habit. Another E, edification. Will this action or habit build up Christians who might see me do it? So last one, evangelism, those that aren't Christians yet. Edification, those who are, will these Christians be made stronger by imitating me, by watching me? And then exaltation. Does this action glorify God? Can I actually offer this activity up to God in being thankful to Him with a clear conscience? Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. And then this one kind of combines a bunch of them together, but I wanted to end here. What's your example to others? Would I feel comfortable if my kids, my family, a new disciple, a convert that I've had the privilege to disciple, would I be comfortable with that person imitating me in the example that I'm setting. Am I setting a good example here?